would like to turn in your Bibles to the book of Job, chapter 11. We're going to be continuing our, our sermon series through this book, 42 chapters, so we're about a quarter of the way through. And we're going to be hearing from Job's third friend this morning, Zophar, so we're going to be looking at Job chapter 11, 1 through 20, the entire chapter. as we make our way through verse by verse. Now let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we open up your word, we, as always, ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We want to see your word clearly, truthfully. Give us the true meaning of this passage, and then also, Lord, help us to apply it As always, we seek to be more and more in conformity with your word. And so we ask you to apply this, seal it in our hearts, and enable us to glorify you. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to be reading from a pastor named William E. Barton. He was a uh, influential pastor, did a lot of writing in the beginning of the 20th century. He lived in the 18, late 1800s, early 1900s. He actually pastored a congregational church in Oak Park for 25 years, but this is a really fitting introduction to the text this morning. So this is called The Millionaire and the Scrub Lady. It's a modern-day parable. There is a certain millionaire who hath his offices on the second floor of the First National Bank building, and when he goeth up to his offices, he rideth the elevator, but when he goeth down, then he walketh. And he is a haughty man who was once poor and has risen in the world. He is a self-made man who worshipeth his maker. And he payeth his rent regularly on the first day of the month, and he considereth not that there are human beings who run the elevators and who can clean the windows, hanging at a great height above the sidewalk, and who shovel coal into the furnaces under the boilers. Neither doth he at Christmas time remember any of them with a tip or a turkey. And there is in that building a poor woman who scrubbeth the stairs and the halls, and he hath walked past her often, but hath never seen her until recently, for his head was high in the air, and he was thinking of more millions. Now it came to pass on the day that he left his office and started to walk down the stairs, and the scrub lady was halfway down, for she had begun at the top and was giving the stairs their first once-over. And upon the topmost stair, in a wet and soapy spot, there was a large cake of yellow soap, and the millionaire stepped on it. Now the foot which he had set upon the soap flew eastward towards the sunrise, and the other foot started on an expedition of its own towards the going down of the sun. And the millionaire sat down upon the topmost step, but he did not remain there. As it had been his intention to descend, so he descended, but not in the manner of his original design. And as he descended, he struck each step with a sound as if it had been a drum. And the scrub lady stood aside courteously and let him, let him go. At the bottom he arose and considered whether he should rush into the office of the building and demand the scrub lady be fired, but he considered that if he should tell the reason there would be a great mirth among the occupants of the building, and so he held his peace. 
But since that day he taketh notice of the scrub lady, and he passeth her with circumspection. For there is no one so high or mighty that he can afford to ignore any of his fellow human beings. For a very humble scrub lady and a very common bar of yellow soap can take the mind of a great man off his business troubles with surprising rapidity. Wherefore, consider these things and count not thyself too high above even the humblest of the children of God. I understand what the point of that is. It's a modern day parable and it's designed to teach humility. It's designed to teach that no one is above anyone else. It's designed to teach against an I'm better than you attitude. Now as we open up Job chapter 11 this morning, Zophar is the millionaire and Job is the scrub lady. Zophar comes to the table with an I'm better than you attitude. Zophar's words to Job come across as someone who arrogantly thinks he has all the answers and who can't wait to put Job in his place. His words come across as cruel and they lack compassion. But the biggest result of Zophar's I'm better than you attitude is that he believes he can see and understand the things of God better than Job. And as we unpack Job chapter 11, we're going to expose Zophar's wrong thinking, but we're also going to answer a couple of questions that are raised in this chapter based on Zophar's I'm better than you attitude. And so the first question is this, what, or excuse me, who can claim to know the things of God today? Zophar claimed he could and claimed Job couldn't. What about today? Who can claim to know the things of God today? And then the follow-up question, how much difference does it really make? So here's Job chapter 11, 1 through 20. See if we can detect that I'm better than you attitude in the text. Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men, and when you mock shall no one shame you? For you say, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hand towards him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. And you will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take your rest in security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor. But the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them, and their hope 
is to breathe their last. I think you could detect a little bit of that. I'm better than you attitude, maybe more than a little, in Zophar's words. Well, this is Zophar the Namathite. This is the third of Job's three friends to speak. We've heard from Eliphaz, we've heard from Bildad, and now we're hearing from Zophar for the first time. Some speculate he might have been the youngest of the three because he's the last one to speak, and ancient Near East custom would dictate that the youngest would respectfully wait for their elders to speak. So there's probably something to that. But these are harsh words. He's so confident that he's right and and Job's wrong. Verse 2 begins, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, a man full of talk be judged right? He's really saying two things here in his introductory statement. He's saying, uh, first of all, you, Job, are speaking a multitude of words. You're you're, you're full of, of this... Um, many words, but they don't really mean anything. They don't have any content. You're full of wind. And then secondly, he's saying, this can't go unanswered. I, Zophar, am not going to stand for this. Your worthless talk. I have to say something. I'm not going to let what you say be the last word. I'm going to get my word in and, and make sure I set the record straight. Verse 3, should your babble silence men, your worthless chatter, and that can't be the last word. We can't end on what you just said. I have to now speak. When you mock, shall no one shame you. Zophar believes that Job is mocking God with his, with his speech. But it's okay, because Zophar is the one to set the record straight. He's the one with the knowledge. He's the one with the words. So we need to let him speak truth into Job's life. He begins, again, uh, in verse 4, by misrepresenting Job. So before he tears him down, he's he's misrepresenting what Job's saying. He says uh, that his doctrine is pure, meaning that everything Job knows and says about God is is perfect. But is that what we've seen in the last few chapters? I mean, we've walked together through this. Is that that how Job is coming across? Is he speaking like uh, someone who has all the answers and that he has it all figured out? I would say no. I would say as we looked through the last 10 chapters, um, he's full of questions. Isn't that what you see? I mean, we, we have all kinds of questions. Uh, Job 3.23, what is light? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Job 7.20, why have you made me your mark? Job 9.29, I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? Job's not claiming to have it all figured out. He's not claiming to have all the answers and that his doctrine is perfect. He's confused. He's full of questions, but that's what Zophar is accusing him of. And then also he says that he is claiming to be clean in God's eyes. And in this context, clean meaning perfectly sinless. Zophar is saying, oh, Job, you're, you're the perfect man. You haven't done anything wrong. You're sinless. Well, no, that's not exactly right either. Job is claiming to be blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning from evil. We've seen that repeated several times, which means, to the best of his ability, Job is living rightly before God with an undivided heart. He's trying, to the best of his ability, to follow Jesus, or excuse me, to to follow God. Ultimately, the, the name he doesn't know is Jesus, but he is following him in faith. But Job never claimed to be sinlessly perfect. So Zophar is saying that Job is claiming sinless perfection and flawless doctrine when in reality Job is simply just trying to walk 
in integrity as best as he can, with a lot of questions in light of what has happened to him. That's, that's the, the real picture. Nevertheless, in verse 5 and 6, Zophar is determined to put Job in his place. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you. He said, you don't know anything, Job. You, you don't understand this at all, at all. If only God would show up and speak to you. Spoiler alert, he does. If only God would show up and speak to you, then he would put you in your place. Now the irony is, when we get to chapter 42, it's so far in his friends that God chides and chastised for speaking incorrectly about God, not Job. After this introductory shaming, Zophar is ready to, to unleash. He, he essentially rolls up his sleeves and says, all right, scoot back. Give, give me a little room here, Job. I'm about to shower upon you my wisdom and my understanding and my light. And here's my first nugget. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Ouch. All this has happened to you, but you deserve worse. Whatever you did, it must have been really bad, but even this isn't enough. Some friend. Remember, these three are, are, are Job's friends that came to comfort him. These aren't exactly words of comfort. Moving on, I know more than you, verses 7 and 8. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? The expected answer is no, Job, you can't. These things of God are higher than heaven, deeper than shield. But so far as saying, but I know, you, you can't, but I, I know them. And I'm going to share them with you. you. You can't see, but I can see very, very clearly. Long, longer than the earth, broader than the sea. Well, again, those things are true in our ongoing tasks as we make our way through the book of Job, picking out what's true and deciphering out what's not true. That's true. God is, God's wisdom is unfathomable. But we don't like the way Zophar is presenting it, do we? Because he's presenting it as, it's unfathomable, but I know it and you can't. And that's, that's not the case. Verses 10 and 11, possibly referencing Job's longing for his day in court. Remember that? We saw that where Job said, if only I could have a day in court. If only all the evidence could be gathered. And if I had an arbiter to stand as a buffer zone between me and God, then I think everything would work out because God would have to, to vindicate me. So he was longing for that day in court. Well, here Zophar is picking up on that language and states that no one could withstand a trial from God. And the message that he's giving Job here is that you are the one, Job, who have been arrested and imprisoned. You're in custody right now. You're awaiting trial, and you're awaiting a sentencing for your sin. Do you think God's going to let you go? God knows a worthless man when he sees one. What's the implication there? You are that worthless man, Job. Do you think God is going to just let you walk? And then in verse 12, he calls him stupid. You're a stupid man, Job. You have as much chance of gaining understanding as a wild donkey's colt being born a man. That's an insult. I know what you should do, verse 13. Step one, stretch out your hand toward him. Pray to God. Pray to God with genuine heart change. Verse 14, step two, get rid of the sin that must be a part of your life. Now, Zophar and his friends didn't see this coming. They couldn't see Job's sin. They thought he was an upright man who walked before God, and he was. 
But as a result of everything that happened, there must be some sin. So because they couldn't see it, it must be some kind of you know, dirty secret sin, something hidden. Whatever it is, get rid of it, Job. And do not let injustice dwell in your tents. What's that a reference to? His children. Remember, all his kids were wiped out in a single day. And the only reason that would have happened is if they were guilty of some sin, which means Job was tolerating some kind of sin within his household. Zophar says, get rid of that. You need to stop that right now. Don't tolerate sin among your family members. And then verses 15 and 19, he essentially says, here's what awaits you if you follow my advice. Uh, Lift up your face. Uh, No more shame. There will be a reputation restoration. Secure and will not fear. God will be with you once again instead of against you, which he is right now. You will forget your misery. You want this to all go away, Job? You want to forget this ugly chapter in your life? Then follow my advice. Turn back to God. Life will be brighter than noonday, darkness like morning. Sunshine and happiness awaits you. A complete reversal from what you're experiencing right now. Security, hope, rest, no more fear. People will once again esteem you greatly. All this awaits you if you simply turn from your evil ways and follow my counsel. This should sound familiar to us by now. This is the same advice that Eliphaz had. This is the same advice that Bildad had. had. It, it's, it's a wind-up after their harsh words. They basically say, here's my advice. You need to stop whatever you're doing, turn from your sin, and, and turn back to God. And here's what awaits you. In other words, restoration is still possible. But you need to change your plea from innocent to guilty. Verse 20 ends with a warning. But if you do not take my advice, all way of escape will be removed from you and your eyes will fail. In other words, if you don't do what I say, you're going to die. You're going to die. Yeah, that was um, full of an I'm better than you attitude. Let's see if we can unpack Job chapter 11. Let's take a crack at it. Let's see if we can expose his wrong thinking. Well, first of all, I don't know if you recognized it, but Zophar is wearing Bildad's shoe. If you remember, Bildad's shoe is the term we we use to talk about this idea that was very common in the ancient Near East, and even in the first century during Jesus' day, where people thought, if I live rightly before God, then God is going to return that with giving me blessings and, and a happy, wealthy, prosperous, healthy life. But if you do evil, then God is going to strike you with bad things like sickness and your children dying and things like that. So it's this idea that there's this one-to-one correspondence between doing good things and receiving good things or doing bad things and receiving bad things in this life. In this life. So that was Bildad's shoe. Zophar's wearing that. They all are. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar all wearing that same shoe. And this is the implication of it. Since Zophar is healthy and wealthy, and he's standing over Job, who's sick and about to die and has lost everything, that means Zophar must be living rightly. You're living wrongly, Job, but I must be living rightly. God must be pleased with Zophar, which means Zophar is in a better position to see things clearly, better than Job, for sure. It's that old, I'm better than you attitude. That's what has worked out. 
And we can see it manifest itself in a couple ways. Number one, as a result of his I'm better than you attitude, Zophar is unable to comfort Job. He's unable to comfort Job. Zophar is much more interested in himself than he is Job. I mean, just look at the language. He wants to speak. He has the answers. He is the one to set things straight before Job. And in the end, there is simply no comfort from Zophar. Instead, we see these harsh, cruel words that lack compassion. I mean, let's remember Job's state right now. Job has lost all his children in one day, taken away from him in a very violent fashion. He's lost everything. All his accounts zeroed out. All his possessions have been stolen. And he has had his health taken away to the point where he's sitting in excruciating, ongoing pain with no relief. Talk about man down. And Zophar stands over him and delivers these words. The only thing I can think of is if maybe somebody was in a car accident and they lost all their family members. And right, and they're, they're in the hospital on, on monitors and, and IVs and they can barely open their eyes because they're in so much pain, multiple fractures and, and internal injuries. And, and they're laying there and somebody shows up to the hospital and starts saying these words to them. Can you imagine walking up to somebody like that? You got off easy. You deserve more than this. What can you know about the deep things of God? You're a worthless man. You're a stupid man. The day you get understanding is the day a donkey's cult is born of man. Can you imagine saying that to somebody who's down? That's what Zophar is doing. Zophar has forgotten the reason he came to see Job. And that was to comfort him as a friend. Well, in addition to blinding Zophar from seeing how inappropriate his words are, his I'm better than you attitude also reveals itself in an even more sinister way. So number one, he's unable to to comfort Job. Number two, as a result of his I'm better than you attitude, Zophar believes he's in a better position to know the things of God. Zophar believes, as a result of this I'm better than you attitude, he thinks... He knows and can see the deep things of God where Job cannot. Well, I mean, it follows, right? Uh, I'm better than you financially. I'm better than you physically. So it follows that I'm, I'm better than you when it comes to understanding the things of God and the deep wisdom of God. And I'm in a better position than you, Job, to discern and to make sense of all these events that have happened to you. So you need to listen to me. Now we know that's not true. Once again, when we get to the end of the book, we see God rebuking rebuking Zophar and his three friends, saying, you have not spoken rightly about God. So we know that that's not true. However, this is what raises those important questions that we asked at the beginning. Zophar's claim is to have understanding and wisdom better than Job. And it's based on this kind of build-ad-shoe philosophy and this I'm better than you attitude, but we know that's not true. So that the question for us today, as we move from then to, to now, who can claim to know the things of God today? Who can know? Who can claim to know the things of God? Is it people like Zophar today? If we just translate it in today, is it is it the wealthy and the successful, possibly? 
uh, Hollywood actors and actresses that are, that are very famous, uh, professional athletes maybe, beautiful people, uh, politicians perhaps, or perhaps not. How about the, the uber-smart university professors or, or the scientists? Maybe they're the ones that have knowledge and wisdom and they can teach the rest of us. The answer is, of course, no, that's not true. Being good at things like entertainment, sports, or business and research does not qualify someone to know the things of God or to accurately communicate them to others. Well, perhaps we need to move in the other direction. Perhaps it's, it's not the elite and the, and the wealthy. Perhaps it's the poor and the downtrodden. Perhaps it's those who are oppressed, the marginalized, the lowly. Maybe they're closer to God. Maybe God has this tender spot in his heart for, for them, and so he gives them understanding that he doesn't give to those that are well-off or super smart. Maybe they're the ones that can see clearly. Maybe we should be listening to them. But once again, the answer is no. A, a lack of wealth or success or position does not make someone qualified to know or teach the things of God. And in fact, no one can claim to know the things of God independently. Not the wealthy elite or successful and, and not the lowly and the downtrodden or anybody in between. It's just not how it works. There is no class or, or group or, or type of people that can emerge from humanity and say, we're the ones that know. When we look to scripture, we find the answer. God alone speaks for God. And he has spoken in his word. Psalm twelve six says, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace or the ground, purified seven times. So the the words of the Lord are pure words, not the words of man. The only one who knows the deep things of God is God. So there's only one way anyone can know or, or speak the, the words of God, and that's to look to God's word. That's the only source of special revelation. God has revealed himself to us. God has revealed to us what he wants us to know about him, what he wants us to know about us, what he wants us to know about the world around us that he created and will one day destroy. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. So there are things that God has chosen not to reveal. God's knowledge is infinite. He hasn't shared everything but he has shared quite a bit. And this is the knowledge that he has given to us to, to know and understand and to teach our children that we may do them. God has given us his word so that we can live in a right relationship with him and, and by faith follow his word. 2 Timothy 3.16 to bring in a New Testament scripture reference. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture contains the words of God. How do we know? The things of God, God tells us in his word. So it is not who we are or how great or how lowly that we are that determines whether or not we can know the things of God. I think we all know that instinctively, or I think we all know that um, as followers of Christ. 
The only ones who can claim to know the things of God are those who have been called by God and are among his people. They are the ones that have come to God through faith in Jesus. They are the ones filled with the Spirit of God. They're given understanding by the Spirit of God and have submitted to the Word of God. So it's Jesus' church, his sheep, the children of God. Here's John 10, 24 through 27. This helps sharpen the focus on this topic. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? They want to know, are you, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the sent one from God? Just, just tell us, just tell us. And Jesus said, I did. And you don't believe me. I've done all these miracles, the, these miraculous acts, I've done them right in front of your eyes. Jesus is literally standing in front of them. They don't believe. They don't believe. Why? Because you are not among my sheep. Because you are not among my sheep. If you approached the average unbeliever today, whether at work or somebody you know, it doesn't really matter. If you walked up to them and said, can you give me just a moment of your time? I want to explain something to you. It's been on my heart. And I want to share this with you. It'll just take a couple of minutes. And they said, okay, yeah, sure. And you said, I want to tell you something. I want to tell you that um, God loves you. Uh, first of all, there is a God. He exists. He created the world and everything in it. And he created men and women. And he, he sent his son, Jesus, because you and I are, are sinful. We, we break his law. We have, we have offended a holy God. We, we, we don't follow everything in his word. And we're morally accountable to him because he's God and we're the created creature. And I, I want to let you know something. God has provided provision for, for your and I's salvation in Jesus Christ. We, we can never please God in, in word and in thought and deed where, where our hands are filthy, but, but Jesus came. God became incarnate. He, he entered into the world and he was, he was born a person like, like you and I and he, and he grew and he lived perfectly. He never once disobeyed God's word. Never once in thought, in deed, action, or, or um, inaction. He never once displeased the Father. He lived perfectly. The one thing that nobody could ever do, not Moses, not, not Adam, not anybody today, not you or me, he lived perfectly. And then he willingly went to the cross, and on the cross, he paid the penalty that God exacts of us as sinners. He paid the penalty and his blood covered it. He, he, he covered it so that God asks us to repent of our sin, to acknowledge, first of all, that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that we are hellbound outside of a Savior and then turn to Jesus in faith. And he says, when you believe, when you submit your need to the Lord and the King, 
he accepts the payment of Jesus' blood as, as forgiveness of your sin, because God is just, he has to punish sin, and he credits the perfect righteousness of Jesus to us, so it's as if we never sinned. He looks upon us with that perfect record of righteousness. And I want to tell you this because there's, there's a consequence. Not only do you immediately begin this new life and he'll give you the desires to, to learn more about him and to want to know as much as you can about God's word, he'll plant that desire in you. But I want you to know it's not just new life right now, it's also when you die. You're going to die a physical death, but you're not going to die spiritually. Everything about you, the part that's you, that makes up you, not your body, your physical body, but you will live eternally, and, and you will live eternally in a paradise that is beyond anything you can imagine, where there's no sickness, no disease. You'll be perfectly content, filled with joy, no sadness ever, forever, for eternity. But I also need to let you know this. If you refuse, if you do not turn to Jesus in faith, You'll die not only the first death, this physical death, but the second death. And at the resurrection of the judgment, you will be thrown into the lake of fire and you will experience eternal conscious torment, misery, forever, knowing that this good news has been presented to you and you turned away from Jesus. Now, if the unbeliever listens to you, if they manage to get that all out, if they're an unbeliever and God's spirit has not worked in them, they will say what? Okay. Thanks. And walk away. Or maybe they'll be polite. I'm, I can tell you feel really strongly about this. That's great. It's just not a big part of my life. Talk to you later. And I don't want to talk about it anymore. But if they are one of the elect, if they are someone that God has chosen to call at that time, they will be convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit and they will see their sin for what it is and they will see their need for a Savior and they will turn to Jesus in faith. But if they're not among Christ's sheep, they will not believe. It wouldn't matter what you said. It wouldn't matter if Jesus literally showed up and performed miracles in front of them they would not believe. And we know that's true because it happened. Jesus showed up and did that, and they did not believe. So the answer to the first question, who can claim to know the things of God today? The answer is this, God and those whom he has chosen to reveal himself to. And we can claim to know the things of God and communicate them rightly and clearly to others insofar as we follow God's word, insofar as we're remaining faithful to his word. Well, of course, the follow-up question is, how much difference does it really make? Well, it makes all the difference in the world. It makes an eternal difference, as we just said a moment ago, personally. But it also makes a difference here and now you see, the Word of God tells us who God is, who we are, how to live rightly. He tells us what's good, what's bad, what's, what's evil, what's not, what's right, what's wrong, where we came from, where we're headed. It tells us the purpose of life, what we're supposed to be doing here. And there's a reason that God tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Uh, Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. There's a reason that that's step one. I mean, I hope 
we understand what this, say, this is saying. It's saying that the fear of the Lord is, is step one. If, if you come to faith in Christ, if, if God's Spirit is at work and you come to faith in Christ and He gives you the power of the Holy Spirit to have open eyes to see spiritual things and, and you come to Christ, that's step one. Then everything else downstream will eventually fall in line. As we grow in our discipleship and God's word, it shapes how we think. We be able to see things clearly. We're able to discern, okay, that is evil. That's good, that's evil. We're able to see that clearly. And everything else downstream starts to align more and more with God's word and it's more closely matching reality. We had a, a power outage. I don't know if you had a long power outage summer, maybe two summers ago. We were without power for a week. Frankfort, Illinois, suburbs of Chicago. We were without power for a week. Now we had a generator, and if you've experienced this, a power outage, and you get the generator going, you've got to prioritize. Especially if you're going to be out for more than a couple hours. I mean, you've got all kinds of options, but the generator can only produce so much electricity. If you have, for example, a freezer full of meat in your garage, you better get that thing plugged in, or there's going to be a big stinky mess. Um, any kind of refrigerator, really, or maybe the storm created this power outage and it's raining out. Might want to get that sump pump plugged in, or else you're going to ruin your basement. Prioritized, okay. Once those things are done, then everything down the line. Then, then you can, as needed, plug in a light or maybe the TV or something like that. But first things first. That's what this is teaching. First things first, Jesus is Lord. God is creator and sustainer. Faith in Christ is only the only provision for the forgiveness of sins. If you believe that, then everything else will start to fall in line. If you do not believe that, if you have rejected Jesus Christ as Lord, then everything else downstream is going to go all over the place. You're going to hear things. You're going to believe things like there is no God. We're free to be whoever we want to be. I decided it's right and wrong. The universe is eternal. It wasn't created. We evolved over millions of years. Out of the goo, into the zoo, that was you. That's, what, that's the answer. There is no such thing as a soul. There is no such thing as heaven and hell. That's, or maybe there's a heaven. There's definitely not a hell. God exists, but he really is whatever you want to believe. Whatever you, I want to believe, you would believe. It's whatever we want it to be. Right? I mean, all these religions... Uh, all paths lead to God. Lead to God. I'm a good person. I don't need to be forgiven by God. I think I've lived a pretty good life, you know, and I, I think God will accept me. I, I think God's pleased with me. I don't need Jesus. God and I have an understanding. I don't need to go to church because I don't need to go to church to be a good person. I have heard every single one of those statements from unbelievers. I've heard them. Do whatever makes you feel happy. Do whatever makes you feel fulfilled in life. You decide what's good. You decide what's bad. And everything else goes wherever it wants to. It's to the point where we're, we're calling good evil and, and evil good. Now, if you've got those that don't have the understanding of God, that don't have the Spirit of God, and if they're in positions of influence, if they're making... If they're making laws and passing legislation, we're going to end up with what we see now. We're going to see laws that are calling evil good and good evil. 
Step one, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So how much difference does it really make? Well, it makes a big difference. Not only eternally, but it makes a big difference here and now. It makes a difference how we live. If someone's not in Christ by faith, then it's impossible for them to know the things of God. Even if Jesus were to show up and stand in front of them and do miracles, they would not believe. And if they don't know the things of God, then their whole worldview is based on the foundation of a lie which gives birth to misunderstanding and a misinterpretation of reality. Where the mind goes, the body follows. Now the good news is this, brothers and sisters. The good news is that in Christ, we have been given the things of God. We have been given the Spirit of God, which opens our eyes to his truth. We're able to more and more be conformed in his image. Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by the and that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's all those things that are downstream. Christ's sheep have the Spirit of Christ actively working in them. Christ's Spirit is actively working in us, revealing the truth of God. And we are continually being transformed by the renewing of our minds, continually being shaped, conformed into the holy people that God has called us to be. Praise God. Are we better than other people? No. No. If you are Christ's by faith, however, then you have something better. If you are Christ's by faith, then you have something that someone outside of Christ does not have, and that is eternal life and forgiveness of sins. And that is better than not having it. John 10, 28, Jesus says, I give them, talking to his sheep, about his sheep, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Amen. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word and your spirit so that we can understand your word. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life that is ours. Father, thankfully you know our hearts and at no time do we claim to be better than anyone else. But we claim to have placed our faith in the one who is better than everyone else, and that is Jesus Christ. Father, give us a full measure of your spirit so that we are more and more able to be conformed to your word. Help our minds to be renewed by the word of God and the spirit of God. Amen.